I'm admittedly conservative, but I, I don't really care what people's politics are from a military perspective. They're entitled to that. Right. Uh, what I'm, what I was opposed to was the overt politicization of our armed forces and our working place in the military because that divides people, as you can see all around the country. Mm -hmm. And you need a united military if you're to accomplish a mission. The American people should not care about the racial makeup of their pilots. We need the most lethal, talented, skilled, and best trained pilots in the cockpit, period. One of the things, one of the keys to understanding what's happening in the world, both with governments and with populations, is, is to acknowledge the spiritual nature of, of human nature and um, the spiritual underpinnings to much yeah. of what we see afoot and to be able to talk openly about it to, to begin to put our finger on some of what's occurring. And I'll tell you, I wrote a book that was allegedly politically partisan, which I dis disagree with, but it is about the greatness of the American ideal about Marxist ideology and about where this path leads if we keep keep walking this path. And I would I would say it is a proper characterization of my work to say it's very much about the spiritual impulse that's guiding modern society. Your hope, if it is staked or rooted in the political scene, you're gonna be disappointed for the rest of your life. Well, ain't that the truth? My next guest is a public speaker author of the best-selling book, Irresistible Revolution, Marxism's Goal of Conquest and the Unmaking of the American Military, and founder of the Save America's Military PAC. Matt Lohmeyer is a 2006 graduate of the United States Air Force Academy. Matt began his active duty military career as a pilot. After flying, he cross-trained into space operations and gained expertise in space-based missile warning. Matt has two master's degrees, one in military operational art and science, as well as a master's of philosophy and military strategy from the School of Advanced Air and Space Studies, considered by many to be the Defense Department's premier strategy school. After publishing his book in May 2021, Lieutenant Colonel Lohmeyer was relieved of his command and subjected to an Inspector General investigation launched from the Pentagon. As a result, he was relieved from all active duty. He is now a highly sought public speaker and consultant on matters of Marxist ideology and tactics, CRT, the betterment of military culture, and the preservation of our liberties. While parts of our discussion are definitely disheartening, Matt and I talk about the importance of reading great books from the great philosophical and political thinkers, as well as the importance of studying history and the roots of American order. Of course, we touch on the spiritual nature of humans and how that has shaped Western culture and how we can move forward in a world that seems to be increasingly dark. Enjoy this discussion with Matthew Lohmeyer. Thank you so much for being here. Thank yeah. you for your service. Thank you. Um, I hope I don't completely just boggle this because I have to tell you until this year, until I started studying in public policy and international mm -hmm. relations, I knew very little about the military. Sure. And I think what's amazing is people People are so easy to spout off about war and mm -hmm. endless wars and have no clue what's going on behind closed doors. That's right. Um, no ideas about strategy, <clears throat> you know, politics, the international stage, China, right. the Middle East. And they they just say war is bad. Endless wars are terrible. But it's probably that war in Iraq or Afghanistan that made sure another 9-11 hasn't happened. Mm. So, Perhaps so. Yeah, I think you're right. Your sense is right that people have all got opinions, but have never really looked into some of this very carefully. And um, you know, we might make may get into it, but 
Jim Mattis was of the opinion that um, the DOD's premier strategy school was a particular uh, master's in military strategy program that's actually hosted by the Department of the Air Force called the School of Advanced Air and Space Studies, mm. where you read a book a day and you mm -hmm. sit down and argue about it. And that was the program I got a master's degree from in military strategy. Mm. And um, and then I turns out I didn't like Jim Mattis very much after that for a little while. But um, <laughs> but that said, he's uh, kind of a hermit warrior hero to many of us because he's the scholar and he's uh, he's a thinker. And um, yeah, I admired him a great deal for a long time. Yeah, he's not afraid of the books. I mean, that that definitely right. he's well read. He studied history. He studied very well read military approach, everything. I mean, and mm -hmm. th that's what you need to not make the same mistakes twice. I think that's right. He's also he's he's invested his entire life in this arena. He's never married. Uh, yeah. he well, he's married now. Oh, yeah. 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 He is married now. Yeah. He married after 70. Oh, you know? Okay. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> well, good. Um, All right, I'm ready when you are. Yeah. Well, that that was part of it. I mean, I, I'm interested in because I've pivoted a little bit in my context of the podcast people probably won't know who you are. So if you could sure. just give us your history, your background, how you got into the military, where you are now, that kind of thing. Yeah, I grew up in Arizona, didn't have a military family, um, was really good at basketball and mediocre at academics in high mm -hmm. school. And so was recruited to play basketball at the Air Force Academy. And um, I wouldn't change I wouldn't change my Air Force Academy experience for the world. I, I, I'm really glad I chose that path, went there. Didn't like playing basketball there, but that's how I got into the military service. Mm -hmm. And uh, while I was there, I thought I'd I'd pursue the medical uh, career field. And uh, so I was a biology major, but then I got a, a backseat ride in a T-38 out in California, uh, out of Edwards Air Force Base and just had the time of my life. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to go uh, fly planes instead. So I changed my major, um, graduated, went off to pilot training in Oklahoma. And, um, I stayed on as a T-38 instructor pilot for a few years and taught other students how to fly fighters. And after that, I, uh, went and flew F-15s in Japan and, uh, had been married just before we left to go to Okinawa and spent only one year in Okinawa, actually, uh, listening to China, and their fighter pilots on guard talking in Chinese uh, near Taiwan. And, you know, Okinawa's right in the mix. Um, but did that for a year. Uh, ended up transferring out of the flying community, actually, into what was then called the Air Force Space Community. It's since become a new branch of the military, the U.S. Space Force. Mm. Um, but was doing space-based missile warning for the space community. And... Um, was a was an aide de camp, which is basically a bag carrier, trip planner, and coordinator for the four star general in charge of all of Air Force Space, and traveled the world with him. And in fact, to D.C. probably twenty six or twenty seven times, I think, during that year to discuss with the Trump administration the stand up of the new branch of the military. And after that, uh, got a couple of master's degrees on the Air Force's dime, including one uh, from SAS, the School of Advanced Air and Space Studies and Military Strategy. And uh, then came to Colorado to command uh, one of our two units that does space-based missile warning for the nation. And it was while I was there, after I'd been in 15 years, that I uh, left 
the military because I was fired from my command for writing a book that was allegedly partisan and its political outlook. And I'm admittedly conservative, but I, I don't really care what people's politics are from a military perspective. They're entitled to that. Right. Uh, what I'm, what I was opposed to was the overt politicization of our armed forces and our working place in the military, because that divides people, as you can mm -hmm. see all around the country. Mm -hmm. And you need a united military if you're to accomplish a mission. And so I wrote this book called Irresistible Revolution, was fired the next week. Uh, mm -hmm. I was engaged in legal uh, and IG investigation battle, if you will, for three months. And then I separated in September of 2021 and have been a civilian ever since for the past year. But that's kind of me in a nutshell, my professional life in a nutshell mm -hmm. for the past year. Did you have any idea when you wrote the book that, you know, given the culture we're in, that it would cause some disruption or end in your termination? Uh, I had considered during the four months in which I wrote the book that there was a likelihood or potential that I'd at least be fired from my command. I didn't think I'd find myself outside of the service mm. and uh, losing my pension, for example. And so as I, as I walked that path from publication to separation in September, I was in fact surprised at a number of things I had encountered, despite the fact that I had thought through it pretty carefully before publication. I had received a um, legal counsel from my base legal office before publishing the book. Mm. I had coordinated with uh, a public affairs officer from the Pentagon, uh, mm. who incidentally <laughs> was in charge of all of public affairs for the Depart Defense Department in the Indo-Pacific region. And he was giving me counsel on publishing the book. And I had a team of attorneys review the book to make sure I hadn't done anything illegal, unethical, uh, didn't over, you know, didn't criticize my chain of command or, or the sitting oh, yeah. commander in chief who was Joe Biden at the time that uh, I'd published the book. And so I, I made sure I was safe as far as that goes. And the moment it was released and I said something about it publicly, uh, it was alleged I was politically partisan, which I was very careful not to be. And, uh, apparently identifying, uh, Marxist ideological roots of any of the current social justice activism that we see that was allegedly partisan. And I don't believe it should be. And so um, anyway, since then, I've been speaking around the country. I'm invited to speak all over the country and um, have founded a PAC and do nonprofit work with a group called STARS. And in doing all of that, I've had the perhaps, I'll admit today, perhaps naive hope that I'm doing some good in the world. Uh, and, you know, frankly, it's doing podcasts with, with uh, people like you that, um, you know, you touch people essentially one group at a time yeah, and help inform them. And um, that's about as good as we can do often, unless you're in some completely different sphere of influence where you've got terrible reach. Uh, other than that, we kind of influence one person at a time, one group at a time. Yeah. I was listening to another um, podcast you did talking about you know, the influence your education, like you mentioned, you didn't have a military background. You mm -hmm. didn't have some grand idea. It wasn't drilled into you from a young age about, you know, nationalism or national pride. I'm careful to use, mm -hmm. you know, different words right now because nationalism, all of a sudden you're a fascist and right. you, know, you have a pride in this country. It means they've changed words on people. Um, but that was similar to my experience. You know, I kind of lived in this little progressive LA bubble. I was, despite my background in policy, and I just didn't go that direction. And I had no idea what was going on in the world. And um, 2020, I was like, oh, this is interesting. 
you know, I had a very specific experience that was like around kind of social justice and the George mm -hmm. Floyd thing. And anyways, it woke me up and I started digging a little bit and I found, and then I was inspired to return to get my master's in public policy. And we had to read these, one of the, one of the foundational courses is called great books, Aristotle, Milton. Um, you read these like timeless works uh, and my class last semester called Roots of American Order, where mm -hmm. we're reading de Tocqueville, Washington, um, primary documents about the country's founding, you know, all the documents that led up to the Declaration of Independence, the charters, right. the covenants, the Mayflower Compact, all of these things. And all of a sudden you're like, I at least I was like, this country's amazing. Right. What we've been able to, like, there is no other country and it's the reason like despite everything people continue to flood here and That's i right. think if you don't understand history if you haven't read then you have no i get really fired up you have no basis upon which to just throw mindless criticisms mm -hmm. you know and i don't know where that's coming from i mean i kind of think it's somewhat of a coordinated effect or, and our coordinated attack and i'd be interested in hearing your opinion mm. but um, but yeah. anyway, I, I, I wonder if you could touch on that a little bit, like your journey from like not being really as a child, mm. I don't want to say not caring, but you know, That's neither here right. nor there. Yeah. Into like this fierce pride of a country. It's so much so that you served it. You know, um, I was just asked yesterday in a podcast with a guy from South Africa, actually, mm. you know, what that turning point was for me, a patriotism, pride in my mm -hmm. country. Mm -hmm. And in fact, very much like your own, it was when I began to do some homework and study yeah. uh, classic writings that influenced the formation of the country, because uh, there's so much noise out there today. And uh, we live in a soundbite media world. It's difficult to you have all this information at your fingertips, but you're never really able to get at any kind of an overarching understanding of things that are afoot in the world. And you mentioned um, great books, a great books syllabus or course, and um, that same name, um, well, there's a set of books. I just showed a friend who visited. I used to fly jets with them, and he came and visited me a couple of days ago. But Mortimer Adler, I think he must have been at the uh, University of Chicago half century ago, but he worked with Encyclopedia Britannica to produce a 54 volume set called the great books of the Western world. And the reason I bought the set, despite the fact that today we've got the internet and it's so searchable, there's a, there are two books in this 54 volume set called the Syntopicon. I, I and I'm like putting this shameless plug in for the, the great books of the Western <laughs> world right now. But what they did is they took the hundred great ideas of Western civilization, anywhere from anything from art or angels i'm starting in the a's because i just saw these to <laughs> courage uh mm. or bravery and love to um you know pick your pick your topic there's a hundred of them and in two volumes uh you can look up any one of those topics so i did this with my friend just showing him my library and i took him to courage mortimer adler has put together in under courage an overarching summary of the greatest minds of Western civilization for the past 2,400 years. And he shows you not only what their thoughts were about courage, then what he does is points you to each of their works in each of the 54 volumes and says, if you'd like to see what Herodotus said about courage, go to these pages in this volume. If you'd like to see what Plato wow. said about courage, go to these pages in this volume. If you'd like to see what Aristotle wrote, 
if you'd like to see, you know, so on and so forth. If you'd like to see what Isaac Newton wrote, even though what we've got in these books of his is largely scientific, uh, go to these pages and these volumes. And so it's um, it's a great resource. Uh, and I agree with you that nationalism, patriotism, it's really interesting. One of the ways in which the current, you could call it postmodernist or progressive, which is not aptly named, movement uh, goes about um, subverting uh, society is by changing terms and redefining terms and demonizing certain terms that were once important. And so when I was in the Defense Department before I left, there was discussion about the term patriotism. Patriotism, uh, mostly speaking, is a should be a positive term, and it and, and it's something that Americans have always taken seriously, and they've demonized it and turned it on its head, and they've redefined it, and they've put an extra, um, extra word uh, that they've added onto it. They've called it patriot extremism. Of course, because extremism is so dangerous and ugly. And so DARPA had worked with the Defense Department on a list of terms, is my understanding. And patriot extremism is now a problem we're facing, just like white supremacy is, just like white nationalism or Christian nationalism is. And we need to be on the lookout for these patriot extremists, guess where? In our military. As if you don't want your military service members to be radical patriots or something like that or patriot extremists and and you know the best people i've ever served with i suppose could be characterized as extreme for patriotism extreme for liberty and frankly probably my guess is that they've been of both political you know major political parties and i never knew it but they love their country and so yeah nationalism as one democrat uh international relations professor who i really like i'm not a democrat i don't even resonate with any democrat policies at the moment but this guy's an excellent author on international relations, uh, John Mearsheimer, mm. I think also incidentally from the uh, University of Chicago. Um, but he wrote a great book called the, the Tragedy of Great Power Politics. And we read it at that strategy school I'd mentioned. And um, I happen to really like the book. And I'm a realist myself as far as international relations models go. Mm -hmm. But he says that nationalism is one of the most powerful forces to be reckoned with on earth. And I think we're seeing that play out. If you want to understand something about the current social impulse that you see afoot in civilization right now, and I'm not just talking about American uh, on American soil, uh, all throughout Europe, understand something about nationalism as a spiritual impulse of sorts and watch how that will wreak havoc in these nations and it can it's it can be both good and evil but um humans are both good and evil and nationalism it is an exceptionally powerful force in the world and there are people right now who want to take pride in their country and are are dissatisfied with the approach of their current incumbent governments whoever they might be and think that that's threatened and so what you'll see is people some people call it populism but you'll see people rising up in a stand against their government because they'd like to hold on to some national identity that they believe they have in their country and that's happening all over the place yeah we talked about that in class in my ir class yesterday um uh well we see it obviously in italy right now um in we do georgie milani uh maloney and um and we were also talking with Steve Hilton, who's uh, um, a broadcaster on Fox News. He's got a Sunday evening show and he's from uh, England. And and this kind of I think a lot of people were surprised themselves by how emotional the Queen's death made them. Mm. And 
it made me, I, I teared up and I cried and I was like, what? I don't even live there. I have no connection. But I think what I, what I concluded is that there is this loss of like pride and country people are, and the people that are being shunned um, or canceled even, and, and mm-hmm. called extremists. And you're like, there's, you touched on, you said the word spiritual, there's almost mm-hmm. a deep inherent um, kind of spiritual connection to pride of where you're from and your heritage and your lineage. And I think she stood for that, right. Despite, right. despite what you think about British imperialism and, and the Royal family being, being part of the political culture. Um, mm-hmm. She stood, she was like the last bastion of virtue <laughs> of any sort of respectable demeanor. Like you mm-hmm. see the Royal family now and it's just like, it, it yeah th- times are changing yeah it, it's just that that whole it, it's crumbling and i think that's what made people emotional is like oh deep down this is how i feel there is a pride here and and she was kind of that last bastion of of representation of that type of pride and and something to be said for a little bit of stoicism not everything has to mm-hmm. be out in the open you don't always have to be crying to right. people you know it, it's this i kind of um I don't know if you know her, uh, oh my God, Brene Brown talks a lot about vulnerability. And I, and I get that. I think, you know, we come from a very kind of keep everything tight to the tight to the best. And mm-hmm. and we could use a little more humanness right out in the open, but my God, not everything has to be a public show. Right. Um, one of the, um, you know, I noticed something I'll point it out. Maybe I'm wrong, but you know, when you echoed, my sentiment about the the spiritual impulse or nature, there was some hesitation to use. Now, again, terms have become tricky in our day. We've, we live in a materialistic world in the 21st century, and it's been increasingly material, secular. And it's it, what's really fascinating. Um, now, to say something has a spiritual undergirding, underpinning, it could be both good or bad. Um, it doesn't even mean it's religious. It doesn't mean it's tied to any institution, but nationalism is a very spiritual impulse. Um, and a lot of the things that happen in human nature and in the world are spiritual. Um, but what's fascinating to me, I'm not indicting you, by the way, um, no, that's criticizing okay. you, but I, I see this all the time. And it's it's even, I had to break a habit, um, reference to spirituality or spirit something that being spiritual it almost seemed taboo to me after a while. And this is after spending my life in the military. And it's like, why is that? I have to think mm-hmm. through all of this. Well, because we live in a, not just a modernist, but a, uh, in the sense that we decontextualize everything, but in a postmodern world that emphasizes materialism um, and insists on the secular and, and, and so, and demonizes the church or religion. And so se- spirituality in a, re- a very real sense has been tied up in, um, tied up with and conflated with religion and which there's nothing wrong with religion per se. But um, one of the things, one of the keys to understanding what's happening in the world, both with governments and with populations is, is to acknowledge the spiritual nature of of human nature and um, the spiritual underpinnings to much of what we see afoot and to be able to talk openly about it, to, to begin to put our finger on some of what's occurring. And I'll tell you, I wrote a book that was allegedly politically partisan, which I dis- disagree with, 
but it is about the greatness of the American ideal, about Marxist ideology, and about where this path leads if we keep keep walking this path. And I would I would say it is a proper characterization of my work to say it's very much about the spiritual impulse that's guiding modern society. So I thought I'd point that out as well. And again, it's not an indictment or criticism of what of your approach, but I did notice some hesitation and maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, no, I I, I sometimes pause because I'm trying to find the right words and I rather um, speak <laughs> as clearly as possible using the right word. And sometimes they don't come to me immediately. But no, I me mean, too. anybody who's listened to my podcast will know I'm not afraid to talk about <laughs> spirituality because that's been the crux of my journey. And, you know, just recently returning to Christ, which saved my life, to be honest, um, I'm not afraid to talk about religion either or Christianity, but what you touched on, and, and that's the thing, what I find out, what I kind of found out reading all these books is that it's not even so much, like you said, religion, it is, what do you fundamentally believe is mm. the essence of human nature? Do you believe that we are just here to consume and it's a short period of time and we're part of a cog in a wheel and then we die and there's nothing else. Or you believe in the the narrative of human nature that there's something bigger. There's a mystery. We can't explain it. You know, the Bible tries to lay it out, give us gives us a way that will bring the most joy, peace and comfort to us. And I've always known that human nature is something more, right? It, there's like right. you said, there's a spiritual impulse. And I think anybody denying that is protecting themselves from some sort of pain or hurt mm. um, and living in some nihilistic. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. That is, yeah. That's my, it, it really is, is like boils down is what do you believe about human nature? If you pull that string far enough, mm. I feel like the progressive ideology fails, Um you know, even liberalism and not in the capital L like mm -hmm. liberal Democrat, but liberalism as Patrick Deneen describes it, you know, how in his book, how liberalism failed, like I'm on his, like I happen to mm -hmm. agree ever. The more I listen to him in podcasts, the more I'm on that side of the fence. But um, I was also going to tell you, I just recently bought a dictionary of etymology to under, to make sure that, I have a resource to know the etymology, the true etymology mm. of words, yeah. right? So that when they try to twist words, I can look up and say, like, here's the root of this word. Here's what it means. So, you know, we don't do that enough. And in fact, uh, I, we'd probably be surprised how much language has changed <laughs> since, excuse me, since we were young. Yeah, um, there's plenty of vocabulary that's actually being added to the dictionary that you've never heard of. I just learned this from someone who pays a lot of attention to language, but yeah. uh, and he happens to have uh, grandchildren and the younger generation, teenagers who are informing him of the latest lingo, things I've never heard of, and I'm a lot closer to it than he is. But here's here's a thought too. I mean, people hear the term cultural Marxism, okay, mm -hmm. and I'm not going to trace through the history of cultural Marxism, but want to mention what culture is writ large. Culture is a set of beliefs and underlying basic assumptions about reality and the world in which we live. Sometimes that's religiously rooted or political, political ideology, ideologically rooted. But every nation on the earth has some underlying beliefs and basic assumptions that shape their culture. And one of yep. the things that cultural Marxism has attempted to do and people need to understand is to replace our belief systems and our assumptions about reality around us. And one of the things 
one of the reasons I was driven to write my book is because critical race theory, uh, we don't need to spend any time on this necessarily, but critical race theory, which I know and trace through in my book is rooted in Marxist ideology, seeks to change language, redefine terms like diversity, inclusion, equality, now equity. Um, And it, it has a very particular agenda tied to a vocabulary it seeks to divorce people from their old beliefs and assumptions about reality and society and supplant those old beliefs and assumptions with new ones. And what that does and what people don't appreciate that it does, oh, it's just academic. Oh, it's just discussion. It it fundamentally reshapes culture. And so whereas before in the military, which I cared a great deal about, and I still do, and a lot of my work today is targeting military culture. What people don't fully appreciate, and it's one of the things I try and describe, is that military culture itself matters a great deal and should matter to the American people. You want it to be, roughly speaking, apolitical right? Uh, and to take orders from whomever it is that is, geez, that like, takes us down a dangerous path today. But historically <laughs> speaking, yeah, you, you want your military to not be tied to a particular political party because mm-hmm. we have this representative system where we're, we're electing people from different political parties and you want your military to be roughly neutral and simply execute orders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I'm emphasizing historically, this is, this is, this is critically important. The, there is, a, there is a need for a meritocratic um, promotion system in the military because you want a lethal military and you want the best performers in a jet. You want the best performers right. diving in the water and holding their breath and going and rescuing people, for example. And you don't want their promotion or their selection to be based on race demographics, for example, or um, gender quotas. Gender, yeah. Or, you know, and so all of that stuff. Now, you can understand or appreciate as a decent person the some some drive or belief that like that's all important and uh then we export that into the military and what it does is radically reshape culture and <clears throat> after a very short while unless someone is deeply rooted in their principles someone's beliefs entirely change about all of this things don't seem so odd after a year or two and we and and with culture reshaped and new quotas in place um you affect the readiness and lethality of a military force and you also incentivize and disincentivize certain groups of people to join for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can join the military and have my transgender surgery paid for because they're really hip on pushing this agenda right now or whatever the issue is. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are there are plenty of people of both, uh, of any political persuasion, let's say, that are disincentivized from um, joining our military anymore because of what they've seen in the, in the news in the past couple of years about the what they would consider misplaced priorities of national security strategists and senior defense officials and the current administration. This is a really dangerous place. And again, this is my focus. My focus is military stuff. But uh, while I've got much broader interests, I'm really concerned about the direction our military has been headed. And all of the stuff we're talking about, the spiritual undergirding or impulse, cultural divisiveness or cultural shifts, all of that takes place in our military too, because our military is just a mirror reflection of broader American society. And got to got to inform people that this is taking place. Got we've got to because then they finally get involved, and usually we get involved a little bit too late. But that's all happening. A lot of we're having recruitment and retention problems right now. Yeah, we talked about that with General Mattis. I mean, he's concerned. Everybody in any sort of military capacity is deeply concerned. The fact that 
you know, my background is really health and wellness. And I just find mm-hmm. it obscene that I think it's now almost 80%, if not more of, you know, young men and women that are eligible age-wise for the military are not eligible because of obesity. Oh, it's yeah, like, right. are, are you kidding me? And yeah, that doesn't, that's, right. that's not like a big red flag to people. To, and like, even, even those who were eligible, who are now in become obese, out of shape, um, addicted to stimulants and, uh, you know, all sorts of other problems that we face. And so, you know, here, here, let me give you one specific example. I've got, I got a hundred examples, but I'll give you one. Okay. The guy, uh, in charge of recruiting for the air force and the messaging and marketing of air force recruitment, three-star general, two-star, two-star, three-star. I can't remember. It almost doesn't matter because he's the guy, uh, recently reemphasized that we have too many white fighter pilots it's like did they merit a spot there or not first off uh, if they didn't they shouldn't be in the cockpit and said that there's a new quota we currently have 80 percent of our pilot force is white males and we'd like to get to 67.5 percent white males now you have to that but we're not allowed to ask questions beyond that other than diversity inclusion equity and we want an equal shake for everyone the american people should not care about the racial makeup of their pilots. We need the most lethal, talented, skilled, and best trained pilots in the cockpit, period. Because if you want to fight and win wars when they happen, you need lethal people. And that's the bottom line. That's what your military exists for. You, you shouldn't be concerned about racial quotas. So the, the race identity politics piece alone, which was a large... You know, I don't even like talking about this stuff. It really bothers me. But I'm stuck in this arena for a little season. But... Uh, in fact, I had a black officer after I was fired from my command reach out to me and said, hey, I never knew your political views. I think you're a hell of a leader. And mm-hmm. clearly you and I see differently about these topics, but I'm sure grateful for your leadership because that's how the military functions. Mm-hmm. Didn't matter if you had a black commander and white troops or a white commander, or black troops. That doesn't matter to our military. We wear the same uniform, get the same damn ugly haircuts when we join because they're trying to equalize us mm-hmm. and put our past behind us and make us focus on a mission that that brings unity. And so you've got these political activists that agitate and they sowed the seeds of division through race, identity, politics, cultural Marxism, and so forth. You have to ask to what and for what purpose are we really trying to make things better? Or are we trying to do something else? And as you see the impacts, people peeling off and leaving uh, people, you know, our recruiting numbers are down across all branches of the military. We have to ask, we should be asking. And I say, we, not me and you really, it's those who lead the country and lead the military. Is this the effect we were hoping for? If the answer is no, you think you'd change course, but we're not going to change course. We're doubling down. Why? Yep. Why? Right. And and Best, so those, yeah. those are big questions and everyone's got different opinions about those things. Jim Madison, I agree. We've got a recruiting problem. He and I will, he, he and I will disagree about the, the root causes of that. And so then how do you solve problems? If you've got important people, I'm not one of them, but you know, the Jim Madison's of the world, disagreeing about the root causes and their disagreements have to be rooted in their deeply held political worldview. How do you solve those problems? And that that's, that's, that's a frightening prospect. So that's my, that's my fear factor. uh, My fear mongering for the day. (laughs) We got to think through where that leads. (laughs) There's a couple of things I wanted to touch on. Like you have to consider what's at stake, right? So if, if um, a CEO of, I don't know, 
the CEO of Amazon, Bezos, is looking to include, to have more diversity in his workforce. That's fine. You know, maybe if, okay. if you're not hiring on meritocracy, your packages don't get delivered on time. You know, what are the consequences? You're talking about the military. You were yeah. talking about life and death. Like, there's a surgeon in the room. I don't give a shit what color his skin well, is. I want right. him to be the best surgeon he can be. I want him that's to be right. precise. I want him to be awake. I don't want him popped up on methamphetamines. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I want someone who knows what the hell they're doing. In that's the military, exactly right. I want people that know what the hell they're doing. What is at stake? And what's at stake right now is huge. More so, I, th I think, than any other time in our history, but maybe except with the exception of, of um, the civil war and, and slavery, you know, or I mean, all wars, mm -hmm. really world war two. And um, there's, there's, there's something big at stake, you know, and, and I, it, it's, I, I think like you, I'm more passionate about, it, even though I don't know that much about the military when the stakes are higher, mm. you know, go ahead, Amazon, do whatever you want to do. Insurance companies, you know, banks, I get a little worried about because now you're seeing the effects of like, that kind of policy, DEI policy on, oh, we're mm -hmm. just going to shut down your PayPal account. Right. You're like, so I think you have to consider, consider what the, what the, what the stakes are. Um, and they're high in the military. They, they very much are. Um, uh, I don't want to go down that path. I'll, go, go down I, shortly. Take a brief detour. 20, 10 seconds. Yeah. Uh, two people I've recently spoken with who have excellent things to say about where diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, fits into a larger overarching policy umbrella called ESG, mm -hmm. environmental, mm -hmm. social governance. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't even like feel right when you say that it just doesn't, doesn't roll right, off the tongue it doesn't <laughs> environmental social governance but Vivek Ramaswamy James Lindsay both of them they both joined my show recently and I asked them specifically about ESG and they'll talk about where DIE or DEI fits right into the ESG umbrella and the scary thing is that you know they're extremely wealthy powerful people in this world that will enforce or regulate compliance with ESG policy, which will include the pushing of the DEI agenda, regardless of the goals or aims of any particular organization. You have to be compliant if you want to thrive or succeed in the new arena, right? And and they do a great job addressing that. So I'll just leave it at that and say, you know, those are two people. Vivek is uh, the, I think, founder and, and president CEO of Strive. It's a capital asset management uh, company that seek it's an anti-ESG asset management company that seeks to compete with BlackRock, JP Morgan, and so mm -hmm, forth. And James mm -hmm. Lindsay, uh, who used to be a mathematics professor at the University mm -hmm, of Tennessee, mm -hmm. uh, and admits he falls just enough on the spectrum to uh, wreak havoc to the cultural Marxists, and he absorbs information and spits it back out like a machine. Uh, I just read his book last week called Race Marxism. Finally, I've had it for a few months and it's it's great. It's a, Mine gives a very accurate high level overview of some of the history of the evolution of Marxist thought. I'd say his really deep dives into the philosophical weeds, uh, getting into um, uh, Hegel and mm -hmm. um, some of the influences on Marx. Um, and so forth. And, but James Lindsay's done a, a tremendous amount of work and is a, a voice worth paying attention to. If people want to go down that lane and learn 
a little bit more about that. Yeah. Oh, I know you have a hard stop. So there's two things um, I want to make sure we get talk about. What would yeah. you say to people that say, you know, you mentioned this, this series of kind of encyclopedic references that that uh, is a resource for great thinkers of Western civilization. Mm-hmm. Um, I've now got an increasing library that I plan mm-hmm. never to get rid of, which I love. Good. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm keeping as many books as I can. Um, what do you say to people who say, well, Western civilization is inherently racist and imperialistic. So why are we even, why is this worth examining at all? Uh, I would say, first off, I disagree with them. Yeah. I would say that, um, again, one of the problems that we face, this is a simple answer, but that we, we tend to decontextualize the past and judge people, circumstances, writing, if we're reading it at all on our own current cultural context and it's just simply wrong in fact we are so insanely out of touch with the rest of humanity throughout all of human history it would be easy for any one of them whether they're sitting in 1690 uh you know isaac newton in his day writing the mathematical uh or the philosophical principles of what it was it called i only know the the actual name principia mathematica um the principles of natural philosophy yeah. uh, or uh, 2000 years ago in ancient Greece or Rome, you know, they could look at all of the things that we do today and absolutely criticize just about every aspect of our lives and rightly so. Uh, and they could do it decontextualizing us or frankly, just contextualizing us. We're insane these days. And and so many of our views are out of touch, off base. Um, we spend our, our time with our faces buried in our devices and our screens full of information and lacking understanding. Uh, I'd say that most people who have spent any time studying civilizations writ large will understand the greatness and beauty that there is in the American ideal, first off. But Western civilization has had a moment for a few thousand years of doing exceptional things. It's really been phenomenal. And in fact, slavery, racism, that is not Western civilization specific. It is a global phenomenon. It's tied to human nature. And as Solzhenitsyn said, the dividing line between good and evil runs down the middle of every man's heart. Mm-hmm. And that's true in any culture. It's true with every man or woman. And um, I, I don't buy it anymore. You, when you know enough, yeah. you can't buy into the low resolution false narratives that oversimplify and generalize Western society as bad. Western humans can be good and evil. And uh, in fact, if you want to get into the history of slavery, for example, uh, then you start you you, you just study it for a little while and recognize that the West did a tremendous amount in trying to stop the practice, despite the efforts of of African slaveholders who were selling their own people to uh, for for profit and gain Mm -hmm. and power um, to Westerners and other nations. And, and so, you know, there's a lot of guilty people involved in this, and there's a lot of innocent people as well that we lump in with the guilty. And uh, that's unfair. Uh, we do a far better job cleaning up our own lives, figuring out what our defects are, uh, sorting through the problems that, that we're making in society and in our own relationships and starting there. And I think if we can get that right, we can, we can better perceive the world around us. We can better perceive history. Uh, but many people these days just don't do a very good job with that. We listen to news, we listen to and watch social media, and then we live in a kind of sound chamber and uh, tend to gravitate towards those that, um, you know, have a like-minded worldview with us, whether they're intelligent or ignorant. And so, uh, maybe that's a rough answer. I mean, that's like, 
it's a kind of a sloppy answer, but that's me shooting from the hip and thinking out loud. No, I appreciate it. That's what this, that's what I wanted this podcast to be is just a conversation and, and a discovery process, right. For, for both myself and, mm-hmm. and the participants. So, I mean, you touched on it too. It's like that, you know, the line of good and evil runs down the center of every heart. I mean, I think people's inability to see an action in someone else reflected in their own life. And like, I would never do that. Really? Really? You really think you're that good? You know, mm-hmm. this inability of, and this is where Christianity really helped me from this kind of vague spirituality is like, you know, here are the, here are the high level concepts that are all lovely, peace, love, blah, blah. here's the freaking reality of the mm-hmm. world. We are yep. fallen, we are sinful. And it just took this weight off my shoulders of, oh, I, I don't have to be perfect. I'm yeah. not perfect. I'm never going to get it perfect. Policy is never going to get it perfect. We're, you know, we would live in a world of flawed humans. And if you if you constantly have this view of presentism, presentism of of seeing the lens of history through today's standards, you're screwed. You have no you, you right. can't critically think. Everything is black and white. You have no idea. For example, we just um another one of my classes are looking at Lincoln in a book called Vindicating Lincoln. And you know, people want to call him a racist and 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 I'm like, what? This is the paradigm. Yeah, it sounds like they're doing a lot of good things at Pepperdine. Well, they are, and and are in my graduate. Okay, in my graduate that's good. School. The undergrad is is a little sure. different. That's a whole other thing. But you touched on again this this um, spiritual impulse of people, right? And I kind of want to end with that broad view. You mentioned uh, Solzhenitsyn, mm-hmm. and um, I don't know if you've read Rod Dreyer's book, "Live Not by Lies." Yeah, um, I thought that was a fascinating book, and you know, to that point, where do you see this going? Is mm. there hope? You know, I try, I, I, I feel like daily I'm battling between cynicism. Mm-hmm. Um, we're screwed. I'm going to do the best I can. I know who wins in the end. I might not mm-hmm. be here to see mm-hmm. it. And mm. optimism, you know, I think Rod Dreyer's book for it's all it's kind of apocalyptic truths gives us mm-hmm. the sense of like, you have to just stay together. And at the very least, you don't have to go out like you or I or in the public square and and talk about these things. But at the very least, you can't support the lies. That's true. And I, the way I put it, many places, it usually comes up at least in the Q&A when I speak at various forums around the country. Whatever your sphere of influence, whether it is small or great, you cannot support the lies. And it doesn't mean you need to be a thorn in the flesh to everyone around you either. There's got to be some balance and many people don't do that well. So um, let me say, you know, you asked the question, I think it's an important question. It's on people's minds. Where is all of this headed? And there is um, good reason to suspect that things aren't headed anywhere good. And that's true. And, um, but people want hope at the same time. And that's true and good as well. And um, the difficulty for people, I, you know, I've had an exceptionally cynical morning, for example, Uh, my line of work has left me completely cynical, but about what and have I lost hope? Uh, I'm cynical about certain projects I'm involved in, for example, but I have not lost hope because my hope isn't in politicians or in the political scenery and setting of the country. And so your hope if it is staked or rooted in the political scene, you're going to be disappointed for the rest of your life. 
And you'll have some fun seasons and some bad seasons. Uh, frankly, going forward, you'll probably just have uh, uh, bad luck. Uh, but that's not where our hope rests. Um, I don't think it's possible to fix our problems right now politically. I don't care if you elected George Washington to office tomorrow and he was the commander in chief. We've got unelected bureaucracies uh, and a broken culture and moral system throughout the rest of the country and an ignorant and um, unvirtuous or morally bankrupt society can never preserve freedom for long anyway. And so I think people genuinely need to or revisit this idea, start within their own lives um, and, and figure out how it is that they get right. And I've, you know, the end of my book, um, there go my keys. At the end of my book, um, you know, I was in uniform at the time. And so I had to be careful not to offer uh, political or politically rooted or charged suggestions about how people go about solving the problems that we're facing. Right. So they were very vague. And one of them was pulled right from Rod Dreher's title of his book and from hence Solzhenitsyn. And it was live not by the lies. Mm -hmm. Okay. But another, another thing, I'm just going to turn to it. So forgive me for just a second. I'm going to read you Absolutely. something. Yeah, please. Uh, the, the last type, the last chapter of my book is called the wrath to come, uh, which is really the truest answer. Uh, this chapter is the truest answer to the question of what's coming. Uh, but it doesn't mean you need to lose hope. It just means you need to focus your efforts in the right direction. And there's a subsection called averting the wrath to come. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily possible as a society, but it might be possible for you. And, um, there are just several suggestions that I give to people and I describe what it is that I mean by them in the book. And so people, if they want to look into it, they can you know, go get an ebook or this paperback's $3. If you can't afford it, send me an email, I'll send you a copy. Um, avoid anger and violence if at all possible. These are very generic, but I still believe in these suggestions. Uh, I'm not going to read you the subsection. Avoid anger and violence if possible. Be courageous. Learn what that means, learn what it looks like, and be courageous. And again, this is only as true as your sphere of influence is large. And that might be within the walls of your own home. It might be in your local community. It might be at the level of federal government. Get educated. We've been talking a lot about that on your podcast. Speak up. And again, that doesn't mean, mean that you need to be, I won't say the word that came to my mind, a jerk. It doesn't mean you need to cause other people to suffer around you because you're the insufferable educated boss of your sphere of influence like you need to do all of these things and you need to find some balance and harmony in your life so that you live people like being around you yeah um live not by lies was one of the suggestions pay attention to what's going on in the world and in your local community and then i am going to read this this was my advice to people in uniform that's my advice to anyone as an individual, you must never be ashamed of your own beliefs. And that's not an easy thing to do unless you've spent some time with yourself and with your beliefs and figured out if you're honest with yourself about them. And if you've honestly been thinking through this, be comfortable with them, be confident with them, be courageous, and never be ashamed of your own beliefs, even if you're shamed by society for those beliefs. You're entitled to your beliefs. Never forget that in America, your right to speak freely is protected by constitutional law, the supreme law of the land that you have sworn an oath to defend. Again, that was to our military members. They need this advice. 
never be ashamed to believe in the fundamental goodness of your country and in the greatness of its ideals or speak in its defense. Never use your position of authority to unduly propound partisan political views. Again, that was military advice. To do so is to undermine good order and discipline. And then, you know, people understand and appreciate this, but it's worth repeating. Never alienate or discriminate against people based on their race, creed, color, sex, religion, ethnicity, national origin, or political views. It's against the law and it's wrong. But this includes alienating or discriminating against conservatives, whites, straight women, straight men, cisgenders, heterosexuals, Jews, Christians, masculine men, feminine women. Mm-hmm and any and every other identity, a group, or affiliation that is constantly under attack by, rhetorical attack by postmodernists, cultural Marxists. I mean, there are so many hate-filled people. Don't get caught up in the anger. Try and educate yourself. Be courageous. Do good in the world and figure out what your belief system is. And, you know, that's a really good start to fixing your own life up and being a force for good in the world. And if people can do that, um, then maybe they stand on the proper ground to exert some influence in the broader community. Wow, I'm certainly inspired. I mean, there's so much more I wanna discuss with you, but I think that's just the perfect way to end. And um, thank you so much for providing your insight and your sharing your experience and your time. And I don't know, hopefully we can grab a beer at some point and just shoot the shit again. Sounds good. All right, Yeah, thanks, thanks so for much. having me, Jennifer. Well, that conversation was certainly enlightening and left me inspired and hopeful. I hope it did the same for you. If you enjoyed it, please share with friends and family. If you'd like to stay up to date on future conversations from Connection, head to my Instagram account at Jennifer Gillardi or subscribe to my website at jennifergillardi.com. As always, I appreciate your support. Until next time, thanks for listening and stay connected.